Hello, everyone. Welcome, welcome back, and good to see so many familiar faces around the table, and and to have everybody back after the long holiday. This summer seemed longer to me than most summers. Not that that was a bad thing, but it does seem a long time since we've been back together. So I'm glad everybody is here. Since um, since we were last together, Steve family has a new addition, John Thomas Tillman, whom they got to meet a couple of weeks ago. And we have news of two new ones coming along. We're going to double our complement of grandchildren. Um, Leighton's going to have a girl in uh, December, or she swears it's going to be December. She's not going to let it to go into January because <laughs> she's not she's, she's not going back with uh, with with uh, full down payment on her insurance and so she's going to make sure that all that happens before the end of the year and uh, right and um and rosie will have we don't know what yet but in february she's due so uh, our daughter and our daughter-in-law are pregnant at the same time and comparing notes i gather yes right they're gonna be yeah a lot of cousins well um suppose we ought to begin since we could wait a few more minutes but we've got the table full and I don't see any reason not to begin the Lord be with you let us pray almighty God our heavenly father who has brought us back together to listen and to open our hearts and our minds to your holy word your holy scripture we ask thy guidance and thy blessing with this scripture this morning and now may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. We call this Paul's magnum opus, a study of the epistle to the Romans. And the magnum opus part comes from the fact that the epistle to the Romans is the most complete, comprehensive, and total soup to nuts summary of Paul's theology that can be found in scripture it's the it's always the one that's placed first in whatever translation uh first among all of his epistles even though it was not the first written um it is the most comprehensive and so it has pride of place among all of Paul's writings it's Intriguing to wonder why Paul wrote such a comprehensive epistle here. Um, the speculation, well, there are many spec, there is much speculation and many different theories for why. Perhaps it was because, as we'll talk in a minute, he had never met the church in Rome. Many of the other epistles were written to churches that he had founded, and all of them were to churches or to people that he knew intimately, and uh, he had not been to the church in Rome before. Possibly he had been the victim of a whisper campaign from some of the uh, Jewish authorities back in uh, Jerusalem, um, and that and his word was mud in Rome, possibly. We don't know that for sure. Um, possibly... He was looking before he went to see the church in Rome because he says that he wants to go and visit them. 
Uh, possibly he was looking to introduce himself in a way that would that would sort of lay out for them what his bona fides were. Um, again, having not met them, unlike the others to whom he was writing in his other epistles, perhaps he needed a little bit more care in setting out exactly who he was and and why he was going to come and visit. So all of those um, are intriguing, but there's no doubt that with the exception of the letter to the Hebrews, and we don't know who wrote that, um, that Romans and Hebrews really stand as the two most complete and total summaries of Christian theology that we get in the New Testament, outside, of course, of the Gospels, which are the words and the actual deeds of, of Jesus Christ. Listen to the way Paul introduces himself. If we go to Romans 1, verses 1 through 7, I'll read it really quickly. I'm going to read it in the King James Version, but any version will do. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a very elaborate greeting and a, a very elaborate statement. Uh, it other epistles give a somewhat shorter greeting. Here Paul just kind of lays it all out. Look at what he, just in verse 1, what his specific statement is. He calls himself in the King James Version a bondservant. In the versions, in the more modern version, simply servant. Um, he calls himself an apostle. And he refers to himself as having been set apart, or in the King James, um, separated to the gospel of God. These are worth thinking about for a moment. Um, the, the Greek word that is translated servant or bondservant is doulos, which literally means slave. He is a slave to Christ Jesus. In other words, and we're not talking about chattel slavery here, we're talking about the kind of slavery in the Roman Empire where perhaps a more, a more early American uh, parallel might be indentured servant. Um, he's referring to himself as a, as a doulos, as the, as the slave of Jesus Christ, but at the same time as the apostle. Now, apostle, we've talked about before, comes from the Greek word um, apostolos, which means one who is called and sent. In other words, one who's sent on a mission. He's not simply um, a servant or a disciple or, or a student of Jesus Christ. He's also an apostle. We all in this room are bondservants 
to Christ by, by virtue of our acceptance of the gospel and our sainthood. And he, he calls the, the church in Rome at the very end in, in verse 7, um, call to be saints. Uh, not in the Roman Catholic sense of, of the, the elaborate process by which the church uh, confers beatification on certain of its departed uh, leadership, but in the more literal gospel sense of sainthood. That is what Jesus Christ described in the Sermon on the Mount as blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted in my sake, for my sake. Um, This is really the Beatitudes describes what sainthood looks like. And God willing, we all are saints. All of us saints of God, um, as as the song, as the little hymn goes, the children's hymn on the on the feast of all saints. Um, but apostle is a special thing, and Paul is claiming for himself the same status that Christ had had uh, originally uh, granted to the twelve, and then through the uh, the drawing of lots to the replacement for Judas in the early church. Paul is claiming for himself, and we read in the book of Acts why he's claiming for himself this status as apostle because of the of the um, the remarkable experience he had on the road to Damascus. So he's he's making that claim for himself. Now the set apart, um, separated, set apart at the end of that verse is um, the Greek word is the same root as the Greek word for Pharisee. And of course, Paul had been a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. But in a more um, Old Testament sense, I think, or certainly John Stott thinks, and basically for the rest of the year when Steve and I say, this is what I think, about two-thirds of the time you're going to have to be sure that what we're saying is that after reading John Stott or after reading Martin Luther or after reading... Um, N.T. Wright. Yeah, N.T. Wright. This is what we now think. Um, uh, you know, I don't read Greek and, and neither Steve and I have been trained in hermeneutics, so... We're going to rely on the great masters for, uh, and, and you know, what better thing than that? One time I, I tried to copy a Monet painting and was pretty happy with what I got, but if I tried to do it from my head, I would never be able to do it. So we're going to follow, like Monet, we're going to co- follow Stott and Wright and Luther and all the rest. But what we're told that that, that Paul probably meant here was he's referring to himself as being called in the same sense that um, in the first chapter of Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah records that God said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and I sanctified you for my purpose. And this is the sense in which um, Paul is being set apart for the gospel. He's, he's, he was, it was his part of his purpose in life was to be this apostle for Christ. Um, in verses 2 through 4, um, he makes some interesting statements about Jesus Christ, that he was promised through the prophets, that he was born in the flesh through David, and that he was declared the Son of God through 
his life on earth and through his resurrection. I think that what Paul is doing here, and this time it's really me thinking it. I didn't go to, to, to see what Martin Luther thinks. But I think what Paul was doing here was laying out the fundamental in his greeting. He's, he's essentially telling the, the church in Rome all of the things that we have in common. This is what this Christ is whom we worship. Remember, we've seen in the book of Acts lots of times when Paul came on to churches in, uh, in the Greek world where they had fallen rather badly into, um, into disrepair. Either they had, been, um, they had never been properly taught exactly who this Christ was. Remember, Paul actually found a, uh, a church in Asia Minor that worshipped John the Baptist as the... As the um, as the Christ. Um, these were churches who didn't have, like we have, a set of creeds, did not have a, a you know, a, a canon that they could refer to, didn't have a beautifully conceived and thought through set of liturgies. So uh, these were churches who were sort of feeling their own way forward and here was Paul sort of setting out for the church in Rome exactly who his revelation says, his apostleship says to proclaim this Jesus is, that he was the one who was promised in the Old Testament prophets. He was the one who was born in the lineage of David, fully human, and yet he was fully divine as proven by what he did on earth and his resurrection. He was the Son of God. And this is the Christ that, um, that Paul is declaring to the church in Rome. I wonder if somebody would read for us verses 8 through 15 where Paul sort of sets out his, or first sets out his purpose for writing this epistle. 8 through 15. Coffee, you want to do it? I'll do it. To kick off the, the, the year just right, coffee gets to read? Yeah, I hope. Go ahead. <clears throat> First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking some, that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some, some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest amongst you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to, use wise, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Thank you. Um, he is a debtor to both Greeks and barbarians. Remember, we, uh, we grappled with that uh, word barbarian in, uh, in the latter part of the book of Acts. It's a, it comes from a, another, <laughs> another Greek word, and it basically means non-Greeks. He's, he's saying, I'm indebted to both Greeks and non-Greeks. Well, who does he mean by non-Greeks? He's talking about those people who are outside of the civilized Roman world. Um, the, Roman, the Eastern Roman Empire was Greek. 
That is, it was the Romans ruled it now, but it had been it had been Hellenized since it had been conquered from Persia by Alexander the Great. And so the people in the Eastern Roman Empire uh, spoke many languages, but the one common language they all spoke was Greek. And they were all culturally Greek in the same sense that um, you can go around the world today and you can see um, American cultural influence, both good and bad. You can see uh, teenagers in Tokyo wearing Levi's jeans and playing with their iPads and their iPhones. And you can, you can go to Europe and you can hear, um, you can hear the same music that, um, that is played in the United States, popular music, the same artists. Um, same thing in, um, in the Eastern Roman Empire. The Western Roman Empire, the, the common language was Latin, but in the Eastern Roman Empire, the common language was Greek because that had been the common language since before the Romans. And when he talks about being indebted both to Greeks and to barbarians, what he means is both to those, um, those who are culturally um, assimilated into the uh, the Hellenized world of the Eastern Roman Empire, which includes Jews, of course. Jews in the first century mostly didn't speak Hebrew anymore. Among themselves, they spoke Aramaic. And among the wider world, when they were meeting people who were outside of their little circle, they spoke Greek. Um, all these Jews um, had both Greek names and Hebrew names, just like um, we all probably have Jewish acquaintances who, who go by anglicized names, but they also have a Hebrew name, a Hebrew given name. Um, so Paul is, is laying out for himself how cosmopolitan he is. He is a citizen of the entire cosmos, the entire world. He owes debts to both Greeks and non-Greeks. And he says that he wants to come to Rome. He has not been there. This is pretty much implied by his greeting. Bless you. But it's made more specific later. If somebody would look in, in chapter 15, where Paul is sort of wrapping up all of his theology at the end of his, uh, at the end of his letter, the, the second half of chapter 15 and all of chapter 16 is sort of devoted to, to personal greetings and to summaries of purpose. If you'll get to verses 22 through 26 of chapter 15, if somebody would read it, we see a very explicit statement that lets us tell where Paul is and what he's doing at the time he writes this letter. Anybody want to read that? Okay, go ahead, Mike. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Thank you. Now, this sounds very... If we think back to the, um, the book of Acts, we remember that on Paul's third missionary journey, while he was in Greece, he collected 
some contributions from the Greek churches to take back to the church in Jerusalem. And it was when he was back in Jerusalem delivering these alms from the churches in Greece. And he, he makes it specific here, Achaia and Macedonia. That is, the northern, whenever Paul and whenever in the book of Acts we see these, these place names, they are normally referring to Roman provinces. The Roman province of Macedonia is what we today refer to as northern Greece up on the, the continental part of Greece. And Achaia is the part of Greece down south where Athens is, down on the Peloponnesian Peninsula. So he's essentially he's, he's saying that the, that the um, churches in the two Roman provinces that were historically known as Greece have given these, these alms to be taken to the church in Jerusalem. And so we can place this letter in very, very close proximity in terms of dates. We know that his third missionary journey was from about 53 to 57. So within a few months or maybe even a couple of years, we can say that around 55 AD is when Paul was writing this letter, when he was either in Greece itself or in the part of his missionary journey after Greece where he went through the eastern uh, the, the, the eastern Greek-speaking provinces on Asia Minor, um, on, on, the, on the Asian uh, continent, which is now modern Western Turkey. So we can nail it down pretty clearly, and this is where we know that Paul's intent was eventually to make another missionary journey all the way to Spain, the westernmost reaches of the Roman Empire. And he was going to stop in Rome on the way and spend time with the church in Rome. Didn't work out that way as it, as it worked out when he was back in, um, in Judea. He was arrested by the Jewish authorities and eventually he was transported to Rome to stand trial as we read at the end of the book of Acts. But this is Paul's statement about what his future plans are. And so, again, we... we we can speculate that part of the reason for laying out this very um, consequential summary of Christian theology is to sort of do the spade work for his next round of missionary journeys. He's, he's kind of done the Eastern Roman Empire already. You know, he's done three missionary journeys that took him all the way through Asia Minor and Greece, and now he's looking forward to getting to the Western Roman Empire. Um, so perhaps that gives us a little bit more of a context for what, he's, um, what his plans are and what his uh, reason is for laying out this, um, this very precise statement of Christian theology. Any thoughts or comments or questions about that? Steve? Well, one thing I was going to say is too, in writing this letter, he's trying to, you know, this was the church that existed that he hadn't been a founder of. You know, the ones in the eastern provinces where he had been, and, you know, he says, I have nothing, effectively, nothing more to do here. Um, and those letters to those churches were more problems they were having as opposed to Paul trying to make himself known a little bit more 
to the Christians in Rome, and he talked about both the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And there had actually been uh, Claudius, there had been a problem in Rome during Claudius' time where they were arguing about the same thing they'd argued in Rome, uh, Jerusalem, excuse me, about whether you had to be Jewish to be a Christian, whether you could just become a Christian from being a Gentile, which obviously Paul very much thought of, and to what extent uh, you know, Christ really uh, not was the Son of God, but kind of how we, they needed to view him. And Claudius got a little, okay, enough's enough, and he kicked the Jews out of Rome. So for a period of time, the church in Rome was all Gentiles. And then when Nero came, the Jews started wandering back in. And so there was also this conflict between the two groups of, you know, here the at first, it was basically Jewish Christians with a few Gentiles, and now the pendulum had swung. There were a lot more Gentiles, and he was trying to also bring them back together to see that they were one. The Gentiles are what you still use today in, in, in Israel. Is that, is that a common word that you use to describe non-Jews? And one reason I'm asking that question is I'm, I'm curious if that would include Muslims because they didn't exist back then. Hmm. That's before the time of Muhammad, but now I, I'm, I don't know why I thought about that. I, I don't know. I suspect so because I know that um, that Jews in this country refer to Gentiles, so I assume that they they do. And they refer to Gentiles as anything other than the Jews. Correct. Particularly in the Orthodox. The Orthodox, who are the super conservatives? Orthodox. Orthodox, yeah. right. They would probably very much. You either are or you aren't. I've always heard that, that it was really used to describe those without God because the Jews had God and those without God were the Gentiles. And so that's why Paul went to tell them about, about Jesus. And, uh, In an everyday sense, well, it makes me wonder how long it would take to be delivered and how he got it to Rome. I do it with the postal service. <laughs> well, that's a that's a. I, mean, I get misdelivered letters every week at my house. It's a valid um, point. It would have been another two to three years or more before Paul actually got to Rome. And again, not on the timetable or under the circumstances that he had was clearly thinking about when he wrote this letter. Um, we know that from the, from the end of the book of Acts, we know that when he got to Rome, even though he was under arrest, one of the first things that he did was to meet with the Jewish authorities who were in Rome and it implies that while he was there under house arrest awaiting trial and it was a period of a couple of years that he he went on with his with his um, tent making leather working uh, uh, career and 
almost surely he met at some length with any number of the Christian believers in Rome. Um, Steve? Well, I was going to say, the letter of transmission, though, was usually done by a person. It wasn't like a postal service, because in some of the other epistles, Paul makes reference to who's bringing the letter to you. And so, you know, one of Paul's confidants would have been carrying this letter, that maybe it was somebody, in this case, from Rome who had been, had met Paul, you know, at some place, had heard him and knew, and at this point, Paul would be taking advantage of them heading back to say, well, while you go, take this. So, you know, whatever their journey by boat was, probably <coughs> a month or so. You can think of him as, as a man in the sense we usually think of people. He must have been some man because of being able to travel all these ways without any money to start with. Uh, the, the picture that we get of Paul in the book of Acts is, um, is quite flattering. And I'm sure that it's accurate because Paul didn't have anything to do with writing the book of Acts. I mean, it was, it was um, Luke's observance of Paul at close quarters, but also those parts of the story that, that Luke was not around Paul. He got from others who, who were there and who observed Paul's behavior. We saw cases where we saw one in, in Asia Minor where, where uh, Paul was uh, hauled out of the city and beaten up and left for dead outside the city walls. And when he came to and recovered himself, he walked back into the city. A man of an enormous um, personal courage, physical courage, as well as, um, as spiritual courage. Um, let's shift gears for a second. I, want, I wanted to, to say that, to, to reaffirm something that Steve said about the church in Rome. We know uh, from separate sources that there was this conflict between the between the the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians, and just like it had been in, in in Jerusalem that we saw in the in the book of Acts, but we also pick it up in the way Paul in the way he addresses um, this subject. We might say that the um, that the Gentile Christians had this very Greek view that nothing that the body did mattered very much. And you might call them graceaholics, that they were so that the, they were so um, convinced of the uh, of the uh, the power of grace that n nothing that they did with their bodies really, you know, it, it didn't matter much. The Jewish Christians, on the other hand, were very focused on the law. In fact, they they insisted that in order to be a proper Christian, one had to first be a proper Jew, um, to the point of, of becoming circumcised and to living within the the strictures the, the the strictures of the scribal law. That's a difficult thing to say ten times quickly. Um, I couldn't say it even once. Um, and so there was this you know this this headbutting, but. Paul is going to arrange his epistle with four big themes. And we'll, as we get to each one of them, we'll introduce each one of them. But 
he speaks, he addresses himself first after he gets past the, um, past all the introductions. He addresses himself first to the wrath of God. That's a very Jewish thing. And there's a sense that he's addressing these, um, these Gentile Christians uh, about the wrath of God is really another way to say the law. He's going to address the law. And the second thing, he's going to turn from the wrath of God to the grace of God, in which, of course, he's going to address how grace works, how the gospel works. And in that sense, I think he maybe is addressing these Jewish Christians about what does it really mean to, to, to keep the law and why can't we? Because we can't. And then the third thing, he's going to turn to the plan of God, the big picture of God's redemption of humanity. As Margaret said, the Jewish view of, uh, of righteousness was through the prism of the covenant. God had this special covenant with the Jews, and God revealed himself to the Jews through the law. And Gentiles were those outside the law um, who were lesser people because they did not have that special covenant relationship with God because the law was given to Israel. Paul is going to explain how, and this is God's plan, that Christ has meant that this covenant with Israel is now a covenant with all of humanity through Jesus Christ. And in the context of that, um, of, of that point, he's going to grapple with how God is going to redeem Israel. He, he makes it clear that, that God is by no means done with the nation of Israel, that Israel... Um, as a nation, will be brought to God, but through Jesus Christ. And the fourth thing he's going to grapple with is the will of God. That is, the big picture of how God sees his people living as a church, as a society, as a community. He's going to address himself to the role of government, um, which is going to be a really interesting um, Thing to read, I think, especially um, these days with war and chaos in the whole world and, and government seeming inability to deal with the chaos, both on the world stage and in the, and in the, the, uh, the domestic arena. I heard once a very persuasive argument made um, that one, that, that that Paul's endorsement of government here, that government is ordained by God, calls for Christians to be good citizens, and here was the really interesting argument, and we'll grapple with it if y'all want to when we get to it, that, that one cannot make a cogent argument for pacifism, as it's currently argued for in our 21st century and even back to the 20th century, one cannot make a cogent argument for pacifism under Christian scripture. And there were points made about Paul's argument about what the role of government is. 
So um, the wrath of God, the grace of God, the plan of God, and the will of God, these are the four great themes that Paul is going to address in his epistle to the Romans. And we'll get to, we'll get to wrestle all of them to the ground in the, in the next few months. Coffee, you wanted to say something, well, I believe? Listen, that was a great, a great description of, of Paul. But given then it couldn't have come from me. It, well, it had to have been given, absorbed given from the everybody else. The church of Rome, in that uh, the, the non-Jews who constituted the, the church in Rome would have been subject to or ingrained with the Greek culture, which really, even Romans, if you didn't speak Greek in Rome in those days, you were considered to be a poltroon. Something of a barbarian. Something of a barbarian. But could you not say, rather than being graceaholic, since grace is a theory proposed more by Paul than was extant at the time, that they were more Aristotelian in their philosophy of Christianity and, and the afterlife. Okay, you're going to have to explain, Eric. Well, <coughs> I mean, I, I, there, were, there was a conflict. Go the, easy on me now. Well, Come there on. Was a con- and I, believe <laughs> yeah, me, I'm, right. I'm really sort of, I know about this much about that. Right, right. But right. <coughs> there was a conflict, or there was a, not a conflict, but there was a school of thought from the Aristotelian school that says, you know, the, the body is nothing. Mm. You know, and all of this stuff doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's the afterlife, it's the world out there that we don't mm-hmm. know about. Mm-hmm. And that is, that is what matters. And that's sort of like saying, well, you know, this other, what we are living through on earth is really, uh, is really inconsequential. Right. But through grace we are saved. But right. it did, were the Romans, Roman Christians, were they influenced by the Aristotelian school that said that, whereas Paul brought to them the, 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 not the theory, but the philosophy mm-hmm. of grace, the Aristotelian philosophy that the flesh doesn't matter and you can do whatever you want to because, you know, it's what, it's what matters beyond that counts. Got it. Whereas Paul says, you know, that you must be saved by grace through faith. Good a good way to put it. Um, I was being a little flippant when I used the term um, graceaholics. So, well, I mean, that was, that's, I mean, that's a good mm-hmm. description. I mean, well, let, let me, let me. But y'all say, tackle that in here. Sure. Oh, yeah. They're going to say, yeah. um, so if grace abounds where there's sin, then grace abounds so much more. Does that mean that I go on sinning so that I get more grace? And his answer well, was, no. absolutely not. Right. So you're going to. Right. In fact, I really admire y'all for taking this book out when Dick said, how did it get to, um, to Rome? But, you know, it's a miracle of God that this book lasted and that they could find it, and uh, this letter. And, and it's going to be more in here about the seriousness. Mm-hmm. You're just not going to be able to cut out pieces that you don't like. That's, that's true. This one. Which is part of what Paul was in, in going through. To him, you know, there in verse seven, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called His saints, he's not saying Jew versus Gentile; he's saying all of them. And so he's going to, as John was showing, he's going to weave kind of the the Jewish thought process 
with where the Gentiles were, uh, you know, because the conflict of, you know, I'm under the law and you don't have to be under the law. You know, he's weaving them back together the whole way to help them see that they're all. And he weaved mm -hmm. Peter back together, you know, when mm -hmm. he was the instrument to yeah. and all that kind of stuff. He brought him well, Let me speak real quickly to, and this can only be just sort of a, a glimmer, but we'll, we'll get a lot of it as we go through the, through the book. This Greek thing, um, if, we were to, if we were to kind of take the specifics of Greece and, and Aristotle out of it and maybe paint it with a broader uh, cultural brush, what we might say is that this Greek culture, Greek philosophy, Greek learning, um, represented the, um, the greatest intellectual achievements of humanity up to that date. That is, the Greek philosophers had thought in terms of, of boundless concepts that, that uh, sort of set the standard for what was considered worldly wisdom, uh, or to use Frank's invocation of the worldly wise man from Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Um, we saw that when Paul went up to uh, the Areopagus in Athens and debated with the Stoics and the Epicureans, those two schools of thought, very Greek schools of thought. Remember, the Stoics believe that um, life is meaningless, so the thing to do is to bear it up nobly. And the Epicureans believe that life is meaningless, therefore we eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And what, what brought these two together was this life is meaningless stuff. And we see that in our current culture today. It, it's not like the, the Greeks may have invented it, but it didn't die out with, with, the, uh, with the end of, of Greece and Rome. So what we're going to see really, I think, is as we saw in the book of Acts over and over, we see these cultural Greek things, these heresies that work their way into the church, but they're not Greek in the sense of, uh, they're not, they're more universal than that, I guess is what I'm going to say, that the same problems that Paul is addressing in the same issues and the same philosophy, or rather the same theology that he's defining today, is the antidote to the heresies that we have in our modern world, the same as it was the antidote to the heresies that, that troubled the early church, whether it was in Rome or anywhere else, Achaia, Mesopotamia, um, Jerusalem, and, um, and any, of, any of the Eastern Roman Empire. So, nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. I read that. <laughs> I, I read that last, uh, last Lent. All right, thank you everybody for coming and um, uh, maybe we'll even weave Ecclesiastes into our, into our discussions in the future. So see you next week, and we will get further into uh, chapter one. Thank you all.